Iranians are protesting against the tyranny of Iran's regime, in large numbers and across many Iranian cities. And many Iranians, in Iran and outside of it, this time it feels different. Could this be a revolution? The term revolution is what you put on a social, political, constitutional movement once it's past that tipping point from unthinkable to thinkable. And when you talk to them about what was that turning point for, for you, a lot of them point to the Black Friday in 1978. And the ones who had not been political talk about it as seeing seeing these bodies. Some of them actually like had had some photographs of dead people. Some of them just heard stories when they went into 1979. Because in the revolution, like the Iranian revolution, was not just about overthrowing a government. Mm-hmm, it was mm-hmm. really about rethinking what it means to be a human. But I think a better way of talking about my book is that my book is the history of the revolutionary generation, the 1970s generation. Who were they? Where did they come from? What did they think? What what did they believe in beyond the words, but beyond politics in some ways? So my book kind of looks at issues like love and intimacy. What did it mean to be politically active? and also be so young. One of the questions I ask all of my interviewees is, um, how did you become political? Did you know that the 1979 revolution in Iran defies the simple labeling of just an Islamic revolution? And this simplification, this perhaps continued misunderstanding going on for some 40 years now, impacts our foreign policy towards Iran's government. And more importantly still, it colors our view of the Iranian people, of what the people of Iran achieved together in 1979. Hey there, News Peelers. Today is October 7, 2022. And this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. I remember standing on the balcony of our family's business office. I think it was on the fourth floor. I was a little boy then, but me and my little cousins got to see history. I saw Ayatollah Khomeini's car pass by our building. A man was sitting on the hood of the moving car, covering the passenger side of the windshield with his body to protect Ayatollah from, I suppose, would-be assassins. Although I knew the Shah from TV and our school books, I didn't know anything about the Ayatollah. (laughs) It didn't matter anyway, I was too young to understand any of it. But all of it was really exciting. The waves of people that swelled on either side of the wide boulevard that stretched all the way back to Tehran's international airport. The chants, the cheers, and the roar of the masses. The people is what I want to tell you about. I remember the black-veiled women and the bearded men. That's what we often see on our TV and device screens here when it comes to stories about Iran and Iran's 1979 revolution. But I also remember clean-shaven men, men in suits and ties, like my dad and uncles, and women that did not wear the veil, like my mom and aunts, thousands and thousands of men and women who were clearly not practicing Muslims, or perhaps were moderate Muslims, or most likely just cultural Muslims. I even remember seeing blonde-haired, blue-eyed men and women, who I presume were Europeans or North Americans, 
whose spouses were likely Iranian. The point is, I don't think any of these people envision overthrowing the Shah to instead place an Ayatollah on the throne. They fought and rallied for democracy, not theocracy, or whatever the Iranian government presents itself to be. Maybe one day we'll have an episode on how the mullahs muscled their way to power. For now, as I've watched the news in the last couple of weeks about the protests in Iran, I can't help but think of the people, the people of the 1979 revolution. So instead of creating a political episode in which we talk about the names of important politicians and heroes, I decided to speak with Dr. Nagma Sohrabi about the people who made the revolution happen, the circumstances that ultimately caused the revolution. I even asked her, <laughs> what's a revolution? As you will note, the answer to that simple question is rather complicated. Dr. Zohrabi is the Charles Goodman Professor of Middle East History and the Director for Research at the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis University. She's also a Fellow at the American Academy in Berlin. Currently, Dr. Zohrabi is working on her second book. It is tentatively titled The Intimate Lives of a Revolution, Iran 1979. And of course, we talk about it in this episode. To learn more about Dr. Sohrabi, you can visit our academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out additional readings that she recommends during our conversation. So stay with me as Dr. Sohrabi and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Sohrabi, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. I want to speak with you about Iran's 1979 revolution. But before we dive into it, I want to better understand an important term, and I'll couch that question in this perhaps apocryphal story. On July 14, 1789, a French noble tells Louis XVI that people have taken the Bastille. The king asks him, is it a revolt? The man answers, no, your majesty, it's a revolution. So what's the difference between a revolution, revolt, uprising, a massive movement? Um, well, thank you for having me, first and foremost. Um, let me start with a non-apocryphal story to answer your question. Oh, wonderful. A real which one. Which <laughs> is that um, every year, when every other year, when I teach a history course on revolution or on the Iranian revolution, I do both, I say to my students, you're welcome. You can have any opinion you want. We can say this is a safe space. I ban only one question, which is, what is a revolution? <laughs> <laughs> well, I should have taken your class, Dr. Sohrabi, so I wouldn't have asked this question. No, no, no. Well, why is that? Why do you ban that question? Well, because the way I tell it to my stu students and way, and then I think it's relevant here, is that, you know, it's one of those rabbit hole questions where... Mm -hmm. You can just, I can give you a definition and then we can think about a counter definition and then I can think of an example and can think of a counter example. And I, you know, I, I say that somewhat jokingly and we can talk about some shared, at least from my perspective, how mm -hmm. I see revolution. But I think the most important thing that has to do with it is that um, there, first of all, there's uh, even academically, there is no one revolution, right? So you have social revolution, you have political revolutions. You have constitutional revolutions. For Marx, there was a bourgeois revolution. There was a proletariat revolution. So there's a multiplicity in revolutions. Um, and I think that when we come down to defining it, makes it very hard to kind of decide what one definition do we want to sort of um, see that, yeah. all of us agree on. Yeah. But I think more importantly, it's the nature of the thing itself. Revolutions, and we're going to talk a little bit more, I understand, um, in the next few minutes. But, you know, there is a revolutions are messy. They are chaotic. They are fluid. And there's a question of scale about them. And to define something with the scale of a revolution, with the messiness, with the contingency and the chaos and all of those things that go into them, um, quite rightly, I think more and more um, scholars are kind of like, OK, let's Let's either not define them, but talk about their characteristics or talk about the conditions, let's say, that make revolutions possible. And um, and I think they're doing that just because 
you know, it forecloses the ability to see this phenomenon as a whole. It's kind of like um, it's a kaleidoscope, right? Mm -hmm. How would you define if you put a kaleidoscope in front of your eyes? It's a serious question. How would you define what you're seeing? Well, every time your hand moves, it's going to rearrange itself. So you are looking at one object, but that object is constantly shifting and changing. And I think that's a that that would be one way of sort of saying why I um, ban a revolution definition um, um, in is my class. Violence a, always a component of a revolution, not necessarily. No, no you're shaking. Not your necessarily. Yeah. Um, I think that has to do with the fact that I think also people have, you know, when I say people, I mean scholars, not the people who are doing the revolutions. You know, scholars have more and more thought about, for example, why is it? Here's a good example that. Something that is a coup, right, from a political perspective, which is the 1952 coup in Egypt, right? The word for it is revolution, even at the time and afterwards, right? Yeah. It's a thawda, it's right? But it is, if you technically look at what happened, a coup, a bunch of army officers, you know, for reasons that are historically complicated, go in and then they remove the king. And then they come out and say, okay, we had a revolution, but the revolution part of it comes from the fact that they, and along with them, they were, you know, a, a population began to imagine a different kind of future. And therefore it had a revolutionary project and it had a revolutionary future. But from a very technical perspective, it was just a coup. Yeah. Yeah. I, I understand that. Um, now, Going into Iran's history, uh, before the 1979 revolution, uh, I'm fascinated by a prior revolution, the Constitutional Revolution, that was, I think, 1905 to 1910 or 1911. Did that revolution succeed? Was that a revolution? Does it matter if it was a revolution? <laughs> <laughs> you know, now that you say it, it really doesn't. It it it. Well, first of all, let's let's uh, go to that first question. Did it succeed? That itself could be a tricky question. Yeah, that is a tricky question. I think I think it's connected. Again, I'm not trying to be difficult with you, but it's I think connected to the question of defining revolution, because the outcome part of what goes with defining a revolution is the second question people often ask, which is: some revolutions succeed, some revolutions don't succeed mm -hmm. or they're defeated and people spend a lot of time trying to understand those things. I mean, I I, I want to avoid that language in particular because I think it kind of makes it then it closes off all the things we could be talking about when we were talking about these mass movements of people that lead to really big changes in some ways. So with the constitutional revolution, it's interesting. I'm of the <laughs> I'm of the school that says that technically it was not a revolution, but that technical definition doesn't really matter, right? So technically I say that because the term that was used in its own time is mashrutiyat. It's jombesha mashrutiyat, right? So, which translates into? Which it translates to the constitutional movement. Movement, okay. Right. Um, and, and in some ways you could say, yes, it did succeed. Why? Because the call Again, this is the political part of it. The call was for a constitution. And in 1906, the king signs a constitution. And so Iran goes from an absolute monarchy to a constitutional monarchy, right? And of course, that, con that, 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 and then the parliament, of course, is shut down in later years, which is why people talk about, you know, the constitutional revolution of 1905 to 1911. Sometimes it's 1906 to 1914. But even that itself, compare that with the Iranian Revolution of 1979. It's, it's the Iranian Revolution of 1979. You know, yeah, yeah. with the Constitutional Revolution, it's 1905 to 1911, 1905 to 1914, 1906. It, it has that amorphousness because it was a movement more than it was this this absolute, not, I mean, no revolution is absolute, but it looks different. Yeah. And it's called it's called a constitutional movement at its own time. From my understanding, and I could be wrong, but my understanding from when I looked at it is that the term revolution was put on it much later on. Interesting. When its history was being written. 
it was is, then called a revolution. From from that constitutional revolution, which uh, occurred uh, during a prior um, dynasty, uh, not the Pahlavi, the one before the Qajar dynasty. Since from then to the 1979 revolution, have we had, have Iranians had revolutions? No. Interesting. Any reason for that? Well, I mean, revolutions are not, um, uh, they're not, you know, natural phenomenon where you think, okay, at every, there's no rhyme or reason. I mean, there's rhyme and there's reason, but there is no pattern for them to appear. My answer, my question to you was, why should there be a revolution? Why do you think there has to be a revolution? Not all change comes through revolution. So um, let me, let me ask this question this way. Um, why do you think we haven't had another revolution in Iran since 1979? And I'm not asking this to get into news or talk about Iran's politics at all. What I'm interested, and I'm just sort of scratching my head wondering here, is is there a requisite element to a revolution that must be there that was missing between the Constitutional Revolution in 1979 uh, or since 1979 to now? Or is this is 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 my question really just too vague and doesn't really apply? It's not vague, and it's it is a very good question. I think it comes down to it, it's kind of in some ways it's going to circle back to the question you started with, which is definitions of revolution. I'm an historian, right, mm -hmm. and, and that matters because the way I look at the world is very very different than how political scientists or sociologists look at the world. Historians are interested in specificity of what they are looking at, right? Political scientists and sociologists are interested in generalizability. So some of, I'm, I'm going to give you an answer to your specific question, but some of it comes from the fact that I've been just trained over the years to look at what is, what is specific to the time and to the place versus what is like every other time and like every other place. So I'm, I don't see these kinds of, you know, generalizable patterns that go from place to place. I actually see only the things that make them different from each other, right? <laughs> <laughs> so having said that, <laughs> just like being very honest, I put all my cards on the table. I appreciate that. Okay, having said that. <laughs> having said that though, the way I understand revolutions, right, and, and it has come out of my understanding of the Iranian revolution of 79, is that revolutions, um, the, re the term revolution is what you put on a social, political, constitutional movement once it's past that tipping point from unthinkable to thinkable. And here I'm just borrowing language from Charles Kurzman, whose book, The End the Unthinkable Revolution in Iran is just one of my all-time favorite books about the Iranian revolution. But but to me, you know, it's we're gonna talk a bit more after about, about the book that I'm writing, but what got me interested in this book is what I wanted to know is in the 1960s, in the 1970s, where all these primary young people were doing all this political activity or were just being students who had friends who were doing all this political activity, what did they think they were doing? Because revolution yeah. was not, revolution meant something completely different than what happened in 79, right? And one of the things that I've come to understand is that it, in a way, revolution is the term you put on the thing. It is a very weird idea, but you put on that movement when you can see success in front of you. And there's that moment, there's that tipping point that Kurzman says, when the unthinkable becomes thinkable, when you suddenly are like, wait, are we winning? <laughs> is this happening? <laughs> this is getting exciting. Let's take a break here and then talk about Iran's 1979 revolution. We'll be right back. Iran's Mr. Raisi is the hardliner president who is now brutally suppressing the protests in Iran. Last year, when he became president, I spoke with Dr. Vali Nasser about him and the Office of Iran's Presidency, as well as the Supreme Leader, Ayatollah Khamenei. We also discussed Iran's complicated government structure, 
and the many entities that are outside the government, but interestingly hold substantial sway over politics and policies. We also talked about Iran's nationalism and religion. With respect to the latter, he told me that Shiism, as a state religion, is relatively new in Iran's history. In fact, Iranian kings had to bring Shiite scholars from Lebanon to establish Shiism in Iran. In a later episode, I spoke with Dr. Nasser about the history of US-Iran diplomacy after 1979. He shared several fascinating stories about how the US may have been able to thwart Iran's ambitions and prevent its nuclear program diplomatically when Iran was weak and eager to negotiate. Dr. Nasser has served as the Dean of Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. He has also advised senior American policymakers, including the President, Secretary of State, senior members of the Congress, and presidential campaigns. The links to my conversations with him are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Also, before I forget, next week I will be speaking with another distinguished scholar about Iran's history of hijab, women's rights, and sexual politics. I'm also providing a link for the highlights of that episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Sohrabi. Dr. Sohrabi, on New Year's Eve 1977, President Jimmy Carter gave a speech in the Shah's palace complex in which he famously said, Iran is an island of stability and that the Shah was a popular king among Iranians. A year later, the revolution happened and the Shah left Iran. Obviously, conditions there were far from stable and the Shah was not a popular king. Jimmy Carter was wrong. So, what were the tensions and conditions in Iran during the 1970s? You know, in the last segment, we talked about that tipping point that led to this explosion in 1979. Um, I, I think there, there, were, there were many. So it's very hard to, um, in the course of this conversation, just kind of say this is the most important one or mm -hmm. that's the most important one. But I think one way to think about it is that depends on in some ways of course it depends on where you're standing right for jimmy carter in the late 1970s right even for the shah anything but stability is unthinkable at that moment right some of it has to do with wishful thinking that i think is a human activity we all engage in it we're all engaging in it oh, at yeah. this moment and, and 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 some of it is also what is seen if you are if you are a king, the way in which Muhammad Shah was at the time, the kind of king that he was, that kind of things that historians and sociologists and political science have written about, that kind of disconnect that happens between the head of power and the body of society, it may, and it quite perhaps, it actually did look very, very stable. Um, but so much, to your point, happened in that year, and much of what was happening, actually, the groundwork for it, of course, had been laid out before. And this is why we say less causes of a revolution, but the conditions for a revolution, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so I think if I was going to pick one of the most important, um, let me, before I give you what I think one of, one of the most important events was, and this is, again, a well-known event, but I think I read it perhaps a little differently. I think for me, the revolution has its tipping point when it becomes becomes in some ways it spills out from the kitchen sink conversation and the underground conversations and the reading groups and the friend groups and the polit small political groups into the street, right? And it happens more than once. And this is what we're talking about. And, and, and it, when you say it happens more than months, means that it continues more than months. It continues okay. more than once. So we all know about the Jolie Square massacres. We all may not know about the Jolie Square massacres. <laughs> I don't know. Please enlighten me here. So Black Friday was September 8th, 1978, right? And it um, became this moment among, especially at the time itself, as this moment of a great massacre, right? 
we know the numbers now were not as high as people said the numbers were at the time, but it actually absolutely is irrelevant. It doesn't matter. So this but is ordinary people protesting and ordinary, the Shah's, uh, I guess, forces. The military, are, yeah. The military is confronting them. Shoots into the and shoots into the crowd. Wow. Um, and, 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 you know, the numbers are different, you know, 75, 80, a hundred at the time they said two to 3000 doesn't matter. What matters is the feeling that it evoked in people. Um, and when I say that, I mean, for example, part, the basis of my book is all these interviews I've done with, um, the way I put it is everyday people, ordinary people. What I mean by that is, you know, I didn't interview the big names, the household names who were part of the revolution, but everybody's cousin, <laughs> everybody's aunt and uncle. Um, I just interviewed people who who may have been political, may have not been political throughout the 60s and 70s. Some of them were, some of them weren't. Some of them were on the left. Some of them were secular. Some of them were on, were religious. And one of the things that emerged by left, do you mean communist socialist? Is that what you mean by the term left here in this context? It could be both communist, which mm -hmm. is the communist party of Iran is too dead, but it also mm -hmm. could be Marxist Leninist, mm -hmm. which is what the leftist guerrilla groups at the time were. So you have, obviously you have the and then you have the Mujahideen, um, which were groups that had, you know, put armed struggle as part of, their philosophy and their ideology of struggle. Um, but when you talk to these very, very varied groups, including, and I want to again stress this, people who were not, did not define themselves as belonging to a political party or a political group. They may not have been active in the 60s and 70s. They were just living their lives. When you talk to them about what was that turning point for you, a lot of them point to the Black Friday in 1978. And the ones who had not been political talk about it as seeing seeing these bodies. Some of them actually like had had some photographs of dead people. Some of them just heard stories. Photographs and there was no social media. No, no, no. It just it was un, it's it's it was it was in the form of flyers or in uh -huh. the form of um um. <laughs> Two days that those days of social media was rumors and 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 speech everyday speech yeah, with each flyers. other. Yeah. Um, flyers is, was a very important part of it, and and you know people talk about seeing that as kind of tipping them over and saying, okay, we we some this is not okay anymore. This is a point of kind of no return for a lot of them, right? And when I say sustained, I meant, you know, the, the Black September comes actually after another very important moment, um, for the revolutionary period, which was the, there were these prayers for aid of which is, um, the last day of, um, uh, fasting in the month of Ramadan in 1978. It was, um, I think it was also September 2nd of them. I'm not mistaken. You'd have to check that date. But it was just a few days before the Black Friday happened, where people had actually gone into the streets, had demonstrated, and nothing had happened. Right? So you have these two It just emboldened things. them? Yeah, it made you think about, again, let's think about the unthinkable shifting to the thinkable. Right? But you need that visual. You need that kind of on the street, visible activity and movement in order to be able to increase the power of the people into the streets. Ideas are not are, are not just enough, let's say, um, um, in this case. We're talking about a spark, a specific event, Black Friday. Um, I'm interested to know what happened since you, it's an important date. But before I do that, I want to know that before the state, uh, you know, let's say it's 1978, 1977, did Iran's general population, you told me you talked to ordinary people, you know, people's aunts and uncles and cousins, did they suspect that a cataclysmic revolution, as opposed to like another demonstration or, or a protest or uprising, would happen in their lifetime? 
I didn't ask them about their lifetime, but I can tell you at that moment, they didn't. They didn't. You know, um, they didn't. Was the fact that revolution was occurring and eventually, in a very short time, led to, uh, we're not using the word success, but it, it, it had an ultimate conclusion that deposed the Shah and the entire regime system. Did that surprise them? The general population? I think, yes. I, I think people were surprised by um, the speed. Some people call it the 100 days, and they go between the 100 days they counted as. Um, there were these protests in December of 1978. A lot of the photos that you see of the Iranian Revolution in 78 are the December protests um, that were held on the occasion of Tasura and Ashura, which were part Shiite of... Shiite religious days. Shiite religious days. It, that doesn't really explain what they are. They are their cultural yeah. They're cultural events in Iran. You don't have to be religious mm-hmm. to understand that Tasua and Ashura, Ashura are important um, events in your neighborhood, in your city, in your families. And let's also remember that families in Iran at the time and still today are mixed. So you can have a family where the mother prays, the son is a communist, the daughter believes in armed struggle. And like the father believes in Khomeini, but doesn't pray and drink. I think this is one of those things that all of us who have these families that have these memories and talk about them at our gatherings know that to be a fact, but it hasn't kind of made its way yet into our understandings of the revolution itself and why that would be important. But one of the reasons why it would be important is that nobody's thinking, oh, it's the Tasua, they called the demonstrations on Tasua, but I don't pray, so I'm not going to go into them. No, it wasn't like that. You're yeah. right. No, not From you, everything. but a lot of students get, like my students get really, I'm like, oh, okay, did they not see that it was religious? I'm like, mm, Christmas is religious too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually, this is a very interesting uh, subject that you're bringing up, and I have a specific question mm-hmm. about that, but if you permit me, I wanted to go back a little bit and share some of my uh, uh, readings about the years leading up to the 1979 revolution, which are quite rudimentary in comparison to your research and expertise. Um, from my understanding, there was rapid urbanization, yeah. industrialization. There was a difference between classes, um, actually market difference, which is really interesting because middle class was actually forming. And then... There's this other narrative that I always come across when I talk to people or write, or read about Iran, Persianness versus Islam. Um, do, did any of these contribute or all of them contributed? Is there anything that you'd like to share about these conflicts in, 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 in the 70s? Persianness versus Islam, I just... It's just so wrong. I don't know where to start. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, But no, I mean, those are, those are what I would call, for example, and I think everybody would call, these are the the long-term factors that go into Mm -hmm. revolution, right? The structural causes of the revolution. Um, And, you know, Yervana Abrahamian has a fantastic seven page article called (laughs) the structural causes of, I think the Iranian revolution. And when she just like lays it down, so precisely and so concisely and i highly recommend that everyone read that piece would you and, repeat that article in the name of the author please yeah it's uh, the last name is abrahamian uh-huh he's one of the foremost um historians of modern iran and the article is called the structural causes of the iranian revolution wonderful um and it is about the structural causes of the iranian <laughs> revolution so yeah i mean name. so I think the way the way I like to sort of lay it out in a simplified way is to say, okay, so revolutions are really big, multi-causal, multi-perspective, all of that. To to make it easier to talk about, let's divide it into three parts, right? And so we divide it into the government, the Shah, the the Pahlavi monarchy, right? The state, some people like to call it. So that is one element. And the reason that's important, and you, when you talked about rapid urbanization, when you talked about industrialization, it kind of goes under that, right? And why is that important is that if all of that was working, 
you could have the other two factors, you can have great ideas, but it's not going to shake things up the way a revolution shakes things up. So it is an important part of the story of why the revolution happened. By itself is not enough. By itself is not enough. The second part is, of course, the opposition. And in the Iranian case, we already went through, it's a multi-strand revolution. So it means that there are Khomeinists. So there were people who were not just religious, but believed in Khomeini and his movement. Then there were religious people. Some of these religious people were part of a Marxist Islamist armed struggle group. Isn't that a dichotomy, <laughs> Marxist Islamist? Okay, that's a whole different podcast. It's Let's a not whole get... different podcast. Yeah. We can talk about that, you know. Um, but but so there are these so the opposition, and they all have their ideas. They have their pamphlets. They are politically active. A lot of them underground or in friend circles. Or for the Khomeinis, it could be in the Jose, in the Qom, which is the holy city. Um, so then there's the opposition. And then the third part is the people, right? And so in some ways, we have spent By people, most of you mean the ordinary people that you were talking about? The ordinary Kitchen people, sink conversations. Kitchen sink conversation, but okay. you need them to come into the street, right? To have mm -hmm. a kind of revolution that Iran had. So we talked about the third one already about yeah. what is it that emotionally evokes people to come out into the street um, and basically sacrifice their lives sometimes, you know, for something like this to happen. The urban rapid urbanization, the industrialization, um, the most important moment for that that historians seem to have some kind of agreement on is the White Revolution of 1963 and the effect that it had both in terms of structural effects, right? So the most important part of the White Revolution was land reform. And right? this was a revolution and, from top down. This was the Shah's program, right? Yes, it was called, yeah. The, so the monarchy called it the revolution of the Shah and the people, right? And Galoba Shah Ironically, and here's a small little tidbit, that the anniversary of the 25th anniversary of Enghalaba Shah was 1978. So if you open up the newspapers, you know, looking for the revolution that we know, which is the 1979 revolution, but if you open up the newspapers in the summer of 1978, the newspaper is just full of the word, you know, revolution. But it's all over the, the page. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the revolution of the Shah. And the Maybe the news reporters were sending subliminal messages to the people. Revolution. That's interesting. <laughs> um, you're working on an upcoming book, which is tentatively titled The Intimate Lives of a Revolution, Iran, 1979. Um, so I gotta ask you this, Dr. Sarabi. By now, there's so many books about Iran's 1979 revolution. W what is your unique angle and analysis here? What, what are you adding to the existing heap of scholarship on this subject? Um. Thank you for that. Um, I, I, I'm building on what has happened. So I truly believe that without what you call this heap of scholarship, and I'm not just being unnecessarily humble and being necessarily humble. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you know, my work really just like builds up on this intensely wonderful work that's been done, particularly by political scientists and sociologists kind of laying out what we were talking about earlier, where mm -hmm. the structural causes for the revolution and all of that. But I think a better way of talking about my book is that my book is the history of the revolutionary generation. What I'm interested in some ways, I'm less interested in why did 79 happen? Because as you mentioned, a lot of people have kind of answered that question and they've answered it in really insightful and deep ways. Um, I'm not interested in 79. I'm in, interested in the 1970s generation. Who were they? Where did they come from? What did they think? What, what did they believe in beyond the words, but beyond politics in some ways? So my book kind of looks at issues like love and intimacy. What did it mean to be politically active and also be so young and to kind of think about what it meant to be in love. Were you allowed to be in love if you were politically active? Questions of intimacy and how that connects to 
the vision that the revolutionary generation had of all of these important aspects of being a human when they went into 1979. Because in a revolution like the Iranian revolution was not just about overthrowing a government. Mm -hmm, It was mm -hmm. really about rethinking what it means to be a human. And how that idea doesn't start from zero when the revolution happens. There's a whole history to how you came to think about these things. Even, even, Even more political ideas like where did your ideas of justice come from? Why does social justice become such an important part of people's thinking? So I'm really interested in the 70s generation, and I want to write a history of the 70s generation, but I don't want to write it in terms of, did they read Marx? Did they criticize Khomeini? I'm not interested in that. I want to, be, I want to know who they were, what kind of humans they were. Um, I want to talk to you about a term that... Uh... I came across in the context of uh, your scholarship. Um, The term is justified marriage. And let me just backtrack it a little bit. Uh, In one of your writings, uh, you mentioned Iran's urban guerrilla movement in the 1970s. So here I am. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking that you're going to get into it. We're going to talk about politics. But no, you didn't. You, 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 You talked about justified marriages. And then you stated this. Without women, there could have been no urban guerrilla movement in Iran. And it and th- couldn't happen. There couldn't have been. Thanks for correcting me. But then again, you you surprised me in what you had shared with me earlier. You don't really get into, from my perspective, so much into f- feminism as you're telling a story of, of how this happened between people. I, I'd love to hear a little, little bit about that. Thanks. Yeah, um, I mean, it, 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 we can do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> um, the short version of that is, um, so urban guerrilla warfare versus rural guerrilla warfare, right? So when we talk about, when we think about guerrilla warfare, we often think about camouflage, right? The jungles, mm-hmm. you know, it comes from a very, has a particular history, but there's also urban guerrilla warfare. And the reason this distinction is important is that the whole point of an underground movement is that you have to be able to hide in plain sight. Okay, so where do you hide in plain sight in a city? You hide in neighborhoods, right? Of okay, course, but yeah. this is yeah. And but contrary to the photos that you know the, the Iranian you know, Iranians love to like 40, 50 years later. They, they, you know, have, they post all these photos like Iran in the 1970s and they show a woman with like a short skirt. Um, but the fact of the matter is that it, uh, the Iranian society, especially when it came to issues of um, sexuality for women, um, was quite a conservative society. And you can just uh, open up the newspapers from the early 1970s and in the official newspapers, this is not, you know, in the home or whatever, there's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of anxiety. And Guam is a holy city, and you're saying it wasn't just that holy city. It was everywhere. It, it ha- it's not a religious thing. Okay. Saying it was a conservative society has nothing to do with religion, right? It has to do with conservatism when it comes yeah. to, um, when it comes to the issue of, let's say, sexuality, about marriage, and all of that. So this connects to the story that you sort of had me started on, which is how do you hide in an urban space, right? When, and this is really important because my book is about a generation, when you're all young, right? So the guerrilla movements had both men and women in it. They are going to go to a poor part, let's say, or more conservative and more traditional part of the city. And they are absolutely forbidden to have relations with each other, but they're going to hide in these neighborhoods by saying that we are a family unit, right? Now, these men and women are not married to each other. Some of them meet when they enter these safe houses. And this is what they are in Persian. It's khane timi. It's team houses, um, not safe houses, though some of them were safe houses. So in these team houses, you have a girl and a boy. Often you have like two men, one woman, two women, one man. And the only way you can hide in the neighborhood so people don't get suspicious is to say that you are a legitimate family unit. So they would be told by their, they had, they were in cells. So it's, it's, it doesn't matter. We can talk about that part later, but you would be told by your immediate supervisors that you and blah have to basically perform being married 
in this neighborhood and we're going to add this other person that can be like the brother of the wife or the sister of the groom. And as far as the neighborhood was concerned, these were legitimate families, but they were justified marriages in that they were political. They, they were, they were acting like they were married in order to be able to hide. That was their so cover. It's like camouflage. Yeah. For the neighborhood. That's Does interesting. That sense? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, we'll be back after a short break to talk about the 1979 revolution and a question that I've been um, uh, looking forward to asking from you, Islam. We'll be back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Sohrabi, was Iran's 1979 revolution an Islamic revolution? I don't think so. From my perspective, it's not. Why do you say that? Um, because I make a distinction between the revolution itself and then the post-revolutionary power struggle that broke out almost immediately afterwards. Um, but if you think about the revolution as the series of events that lead to February 11th, 1979, when then somebody comes on the radio and says, this is the sound, this is the voice of Tehran. This is the voice, um, of the revolution and you know, everybody kind of sees that as this moment of success and a victory. Um, and then, of course, you have the spring of freedom that comes after it, which is for a period of like three or four months. Public, everything was published. People were debating on the streets. You know that better than me. Kind of um, like the honeymoon period. It's the honeymoon period. And then the power struggle starts. And then there's a power struggle that starts between the Khomeini's faction, basically, and basically every other faction of the revolution, all the strands of the revolution. To me, you know, saying that it was an Islamic revolution does a couple of things. Most importantly, it just goes against the evidence of history. Um, <laughs> oops, it's kind of a major oops. thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you could point out and say, look, how well, you know, Khomeini was a religious figure. And he was clearly the leader of this revolution. But if you actually read what was being written, and if you talk to a lot of the people, people understood that they had a very utilitarian relationship to that figurehead. So they saw, they quite rightly saw that he and, and the work that his group had done was able to bring out people into the streets on a far larger scale then let's say the communists would have been able to, or the Marxist-Leninists would have been able to, or the secular nationalists would have been able to. So many mass had also. They understood that. Um, and they saw this as a very, um, okay, we're going to all follow, we're all going, going to sort of follow in these footsteps, right? But, and you can say it's hubris, you can say, but, but like that's not going to be the end of the story. The end of the story is when the day after, when we're going to start building or start imagining what kind of a future we want to have. And so to me, that's a very, very important distinction to draw because it actually has implications for everything that came afterwards, right? Which, which um, really takes me to this question that I've been meaning to ask you as well and follow up. D does my question, the question that I asked in the beginning of this segment, uh, was Iran's 1979 revolution and Islamic revolution. Does that question and your answer to it even matter 40 years after the fact? Well, I'm an historian, so I have to say yes. Yeah. No, 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 <laughs> but doesn't matter. 
<laughs> Adele, it's my job, of course. What are you doing here? I'm no, like, no. Are you trying to get rid of my <laughs> job? Fired. No, like for policy implications, right? We have issues with Iran. And I don't want to discuss the news here, but does understanding that definition or whatever, maybe a definition that has been supplanted, um, does that matter? I think it de- the answer is yes, it matters. And in some ways, no, it doesn't matter. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it depends on what we mean by matters. Matters for what? Right. What is the point of this matter? I'm interested in its impact on international policy implications. Sure. That's, that's that, yes, very much. Impact. How so? Yeah. Well, so, you know, for those of us who've been uh, lucky enough to have talk to people, let's say just U.S. foreign policy, um, to think of, to, to speak to people who are involved in U.S. foreign policy. One of the things that is striking for me very much when I talk to them is the way in which there is this idea that Iran is one thing. This thing was born in 1979. Even if it was a human being over 40 years, it would have changed, but not in their minds, right? I like to I like to think that I've evolved in the last forty years personally myself. (laughs) Aging means something, but but it's it's this idea that okay, oh my god, black chadori women, you know, um, bearded, veiled veiled women, these women clad in black, these um, you know, um, bearded bearded men. men yelling and screaming. They hate America. Look, there was a hostage crisis. And they, they took our people hostage in um, 1979. And that is the Iran that we are dealing with. So it matters because you either want to deal with reality, which means there has been an evolution, or you just want to deal with something imaginary in your head, in which case, no wonder the foreign policy keeps, keeps like <laughs> failing because there's a refusal to actually contend with what is in front of them. And what is in front of them was created both out of the revolutionary moments and ideas and culture and then the post-revolution. And if I may add, that was created by different groups, not just in Islam. Okay. Um, You talked about, you know, we're talking about foreign policy. You, You mentioned the hostage crisis. Why did the revolution so quickly become anti-American. And and for the record, it wasn't just anti-American. It just, that was the most virulent sort of strand of it. It was anti-Israel. It was anti, for a while, uh, Soviet Union, England, name it. Why? Yeah. Um, sort of anti-foreign. Well, no, it was not anti-foreign, you know. I misspeak. It was anti-quote-unquote imperialist powers, yes. right? Is that correct? That would be correct. Okay, yeah. There you so go. I was going to yeah. say, you know, like one of the first in that, like one of the first foreigners who came to Iran after the revolution, aside from um, a representative from Yasser Arafat, which makes a lot of sense, was 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 from Nicaragua because Nicaragua went through its own revolution oh, in the same okay. year, right? And yeah. so it actually is connected to your question because there was a sense of these anti-imperialist, you know anti-colonial revolutions were all connected somehow. You know, they were born out of that moment. And that is basically the answer, is that it didn't become anti-American if you think of anti-American as what existed at that moment in time, which is anti-imperialism, as one of the cries of not just Iranians, but Nicaraguans, of, of people in Granada who had also yeah, yeah. another revolution in 1979, of the people of Oman, you know, who had the Dopari revolution from 1965 to 1975. It was the word of the moment, right? It was the idea of the moment. It was this post-colonial um, movement that was happening. But if the question is, but that is an idea, and that is very different than the hostage crisis, right? Then the question becomes then, why did the hostage crisis happen? And mm-hmm. that goes back to me saying, I'm a, very, I'm a historian, so I look at the specificity of the moment, right? There was a lot, as, and, and people love to say this all the time, but it's important to remember that the students who climbed over the embassy wall, right? 
did not, they gave, that it was, it was the revolutionary movement from 79 just continuing them into December, into November um, 4th of 1979. They just climbed up the wall and then they went there and then they turned to Khomeini and said, oh, what do we do now? <laughs> right? But this doesn't mean that Khomeini was a reluctant person who was like, he could have obviously said, well, let them go. Yeah. And he didn't, right? Because that fit into, and this is going back to the question you asked before, we have to understand that there was a power struggle. And so much of what happens after the revolution is 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 part of that power struggle between the various factions. And as you as people may know, the interim government, which was not run by clerics, but by a guy named Bozagon, who was religious, but he was culturally, I mean, he was a believer, and he's not a cleric in any shape or form. His government, its fall is connected to the students who went did, did and took the uh, They resigned in protest. Is that what happened? He resigned. Yeah. Was yeah. I done yeah. resigned in protest? Um, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Sohrabi as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Sohrabi, uh... We all have heard the name Masa Amini. Her tragic death ignited the widespread protests in Iran and the worldwide support for the Iranian people. Are there names and stories of victims or heroes of the 1979 revolution or perhaps the years that led up to it that stick out for you that you want to share with us? Thank you. And I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you kind of asked that question and sort of acknowledged the moment in which we're having this conversation. Um, the answer is, I wish I could, but I promised my um, interviewees that I would never use their name um, in my research or when I talked about it. But I think in some Without ways, names, put some context to it. Some, like, you know, I don't want it to be a massive, as you just said, uh, black-veiled women and bearded men. Who are the people, like individual people? I was thinking today in the context of what's going on in Iran right now, I was thinking today of one of the women that I interviewed several years ago. And um, one of the questions I asked all of my interviewees is, um, how did you become political? And most of them talk about reading books, right? And it doesn't matter what their political views were. They all talk about like, you know, my uncle or my aunt or my cousin or my friend gave me a book and I read it and it just like changed my mind. But one of them talked to me about riding a motorcycle. Um, she, she, into her. A woman riding a motorcycle in Iran. In the 1970s. Okay. And she, I really, I've, I've been thinking about her a lot in the context of what is going on today. Um, not because I think there's an equivalence between riding a motorcycle and getting to choose your clothes and not having to die yeah. um, because, well, because of the brutality of the state, but because there's something about the image of her on a motorcycle that she talked to me a lot about, about how she would, her family didn't know, um, she would do it in the dead of the night so that the neighbors wouldn't speak about it and she would get on her motorcycle and then she would go to underground political um, events to distribute sometimes um, flyers, to pick up um, illegal books and just that thrill of feeling freedom or the possibility of freedom for her is, is something that I've been thinking out about a lot and, and I also have been That's thinking That's so exciting about, for a young person. Isn't it? It's so exciting to be this young woman in Iran in the 1970s. Um, she owns a motorcycle. I mean, do, yeah, I know. You buy it and where do you even keep it in Tehran? Okay. Those yeah, are... No, no. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful story. No, no, we don't. Because to me, you know, we clearly as... This is putting my scholarly hat on. 
the kind of emotion that suffering and pain, individualized suffering and pain, evokes in people can be a catalyst for action. And we are watching it today be a catalyst for action. But then putting aside my scholarly hat, or actually keeping it half on, we forget the kind of sense of liberation and joy that is part and parcel of all revolutionary movements, regardless of whether that movement gets to be called a revolution at the end of the day or not. And so the stories that I've been thinking about and the stories that come out of Iran today also kind of evoke that I keep thinking about that that happiness, that sense of joy that you get to do something that you were told you could never do again. And that moment itself, even though the pain comes later, you get arrested, you get beaten up, both now and in the past, um, I want to kind of recognize these stories that people told me about the kind of empowerment they had in that moment. Standing and, up for yourself. And the yourself. happiness it brought. Standing up for yourself, standing up to for yourself. I have stories of high school students talking about what it meant for them in 1978 in Iran to go on strike. They had watched, you know, the grownups, the uh, college students do that. And for them to organize walkouts. So one of my interviewees, he was 17 and, and outside of Tehran, so not a Tehran story. And he organized his school's walkout. And 40 years later, 50 years later, he's telling me this story. And I can see that 17-year-old kid, just, <laughs> just the happiness he must have embodied. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. And and I think it's not so much about heroes. It's not so much about tragedy and suffering. All of that is part and parcel of it. But we can't tell the whole story, not of today and not of the past, if we don't forget that so many people are exhilarated by, by, by the empowerment that a revolutionary movement gives them. And it's what lets them go and take the risks that they do. Um, the people that you've interviewed, um, are they all now outside of Iran in diaspora, or do you ever get the opportunity to, to talk to someone inside Iran? I don't. I, I don't go to Iran um, for obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, but I talk to. I sometimes talk to people on various. Um, you know, on Zoom or on yeah, yeah. Um, FaceTime and stuff. But, but I like to be present. And mm -hmm. so what I do is that I'll interview people who are visiting from Iran. So somebody will tell me, hey, you know, my aunt was active in Iran and she's coming and visiting for a month. Um, and I'll go and I'll just like interview the aunt. So I get access to people because, you know, memory acts in such funny ways. And when you are have lived most of your life outside Iran or you ran away from Iran because of the revolution, or the post-revolutionary events, it colors how you think about your experience. So there's a difference. And yeah. I'm very interested in also talking to people whose lives have not been split in half by um, immigration, forced or otherwise. But yeah. I can't go to Yeah. Um, Dr. Sohrabi, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, Please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you. Thank you so much. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. 
and our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.